The Bible is a book full of unsolved mysteries. Are you looking to finally make sense of it all? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Patty Smith once said, The idea of redemption is always good news, even if it means sacrifice or some difficult times. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary, as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts via email, messaging us at ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So, Jonathan, what is the subject for today? Well, Rick, our question is, did Jesus really die for everyone? And our theme text is found in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. All right, so the question, did Jesus really die for everyone? Well, look, every Christian adheres to and celebrates the belief that Jesus died to pay for our sins. In the spirit of Jesus' own words, saying that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, we go about preaching the good news of the salvation made available through the life, death, and resurrection of our Master. It's here that the questions and differences come into play. What does it mean that Jesus died for, air quotes, all? Does that imply uh, an equal opportunity for each and every human being who ever lived to come to salvation? If so, then how does it work for the billions who've never had Jesus presented to them as a viable option for belief? If there is not an equal opportunity for all, then why not? What would possibly keep God from presenting a choice to every human being? So, Jonathan, this is a really big question. And there are so many answers from no, so many perspectives, Rick. Right. So uh, coming up in today's podcast, folks, here, here's what we're going to be going through. You know, has God's plan been prone to failure? That's one of our questions. God gave Israel the law, the Ten Commandments through Moses, as a way to keep them close to him. They didn't stay close, and God knew they wouldn't. So did God therefore set them up to fail? Was the law he gave them defective? Does God need a do-over? We believe that Jesus will be the mediator between God and humanity in a similar fashion to Moses mediating for Israel. So what's the difference between them? The Bible gives us powerful proofs that the context of the world's judgment, not condemning, but judgment, will be different under Jesus. Find out how that's coming up. Also coming up, who goes to heaven? Why do they go and why do others not go? What's the end result for those who don't go to heaven? And what do those who go to heaven have to do as a result of that end result? It's all connected, as we will soon see. Stay tuned for that as well. We'll wrap up by taking the details of the plan for redeeming all of humanity and distilling them down into a simple, scriptural, step-by-step format. You've got to hear. Stay with us for that. But first, Jonathan, let's get started with this. Understanding what happens to believe the unbelieving masses through history is a problem 
if you see God as benevolent, because you've got all these people. What do you do with them? Several well-known preachers within Christianity have struggled with this and have made some pretty fascinating statements while trying to explain this dilemma. So I'm going to start with that dilemma right here and right now. So, Jonathan, the scriptures seem to say two different things, okay? First example seems to say that the die is cast in this life for each person to determine eternity. And we'll look at first, uh, I'm sorry, John chapter 5, verses 28 to 29, as an example of something that can be interpreted that way. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And Rick, I want to say something about this verse. Okay, you know what? Let's hold off on that for now. Let's come back to that later because, okay. you know, the, the way the verse is written, as a matter of fact, in the King James Version, it says, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of damnation or condemnation. So, you know, we got a, a harshness to that. And as a matter of fact, you look at some Bible commentators. Matthew Poole, for instance, says the following on verse 29. But others who have wrought iniquity and died without repentance and faith in me shall arise, that the justice of God may, by me, the judge of the quick and the dead, be executed upon them until eternal condemnation. This Daniel said in twelve, chapter 12, verse 2, called shame and everlasting contempt. So you, you see from that commentary, there's the sense of, yeah, they're going to get theirs. So, you know, there's a resurrection so they get theirs, a resurrection of life, and a resurrection so they get, they get theirs. Now, is that the way that Bible verse reads? We'll, we'll get to that as, as we unfold. But the second example, because that seems to say, yeah, it is. You know, those people, you know, that's it. They're done. The second example seems to say that everyone will ultimately have a choice in determining their eternal fate. And let's use 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 as that example. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, and we're going to touch on this much more in segment two, but Jonathan, I want to, I want to just stop here for a minute because it says, you know, God desires all men to be saved. And it's almost like you look at that and you say, yeah, you know, he really has this feeling toward all men. He would really like for them to be saved. But is that what that really means? Well, Rick, in the Greek it means to will, to have in mind, intend, to be resolved or determined, to purpose, to desire, to wish, to love. So you've got several, several definitions there from the strong will, to have in mind, to intend. So if you're going to pin one of these definitions on God Almighty, does God wish for things? I don't think so. I wouldn't choose that. No, yeah. it doesn't make sense with the character of it God. It doesn't. So you look at this and you say, God has in mind for all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We're going to get into that further, but that gives you a sense that, well, you know what? There seems to be an opportunity for everyone else somehow or other. So, you know, the question, is this a mere thought or wish on the part of God, or is it a resolved decision? Understanding this, answering this really is the key to the whole situation. So, Jonathan, let's, let's, let's pause here for a second, because there's different ways of looking at what happens to the people who don't believe in Jesus. 
many preachers from many denominations have given many, 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 many different answers to this question because you have untold billions of people throughout history who have never heard the name of Christ. And we all know, and you know, let's set this as, as a standard, that there is only one name by which mankind can be saved, and that is the name of Jesus. That is spoken several times in the New Testament. Okay? So, we're going to feature some of the answers from some of the preachers that you may have heard of, and just get a sense of where they're coming from. Because, you know, most of us really believe God is love. So, our first example is going to be Joel Osteen. Okay, now this is this is several years old. He was on an interview with Larry King, Larry King Live. So this is several years ago, and 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 Larry King was asking him about a Jewish person. Can a Jewish person go to heaven? Because obviously, a Jewish person doesn't believe in Jesus, and so that's the the background, the context for this call that comes into the program and the following short discussion. Yeah, I would agree with her. I believe that. So then that's a what Jew you, is not going to heaven. No, I, I, I can't. Well, here's my thing, Larry, is I can't judge somebody's heart, you know. I don't know. Only God can look at somebody's heart. And so, I don't know. I just, to me, it's not my business to say, you know, this one is or this one isn't. I'm just saying, here's what the Bible teaches, and I want to put my faith in, uh, you know, in Christ. And I, I just, I think it's wrong when we go around saying, you know, you're not going, you're not going, you're not going, because it's not exactly my way. I'm just, I'm but not going to be the God. you believe your way. I believe my way. I believe my way with all my heart. But, for uh, someone who doesn't share it, well, it is wrong, isn't it, yeah. Andy? Well, I don't know if I look at it like that. I would, I would present my way, but I'm just going to let God be the judge of that. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. So you heard, I don't know. And, and look, that's a legitimate I don't know, because that's a legitimate dilemma, especially with the type of ministry that, that uh, Mr. Osteen has. It is a ministry that, that tries to draw people together and, and give them a sense of, of goodness and happiness and God's love. And when you bring this aspect in about, well, what happens to people who never heard of Jesus? That's a dilemma. Now, there are those who say, well, they're going to burn in hell. We've dealt with that, you know, uh, in great detail in the past. We're not going down that road uh, today. But uh, it's a dilemma. And his answer is, I don't know, because he doesn't want to say, because you don't believe in Jesus, you can't go to heaven. But that's, the scriptures say there is no salvation in any other name but Jesus. What do you do with that? That's a tough answer, tough question. Let's lay the groundwork for this whole conversation on did Jesus really die for anyone by talking about somebody other than Jesus. Let's talk about Moses, because what we're going to see is a startling scriptural comparison between Moses and Jesus, and it's going to help us put this whole thing together. In Deuteronomy, now now in Exodus, you know, Moses is given the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, he is reiterating the Ten Commandments to the people. Now, he's standing as a mediator between God and the people, and that's exactly what verse 5 says. So let's do uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 5, and then we're going to jump to verses 8 through 10, or 8 and 9, I'm sorry. While I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, he said, Okay, while I was standing between you and the Lord at that time, that absolutely positively describes what a mediator does, comes between two parties that are at odds. The people are too sinful to approach God. God is too perfect to deal with sin. 
Moses was standing in between so the two at odds party can come together, and it was through the Ten Commandments, through what God said had to be. So then he goes into the Ten Commandments, and verses 8 and 9, we're going to focus on just one of the commandments. It's about uh, having idols, but listen to what he says, what Moses says, after he reiterates that particular commandment. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Okay, that's the commandment. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. So what he's saying is if you have idols in your life, that you really are hating him. And God says, when you do that, the iniquity of the fathers will be visited on the children and their children's children and their children's children's children and maybe even one more generation. And you say, wow, that's pretty hefty. That's pretty strong. Why would God do that? And that's an important question. So let's just put some observations of these scriptures in in place, and then we're going to deal with that. Why would God do that part? Go ahead. All right, Rick. The first one would be Moses mediated between God and the people at the giving of the law. Okay. He literally, the scripture says, he stood in between. This is huge. Okay, Jonathan, because Jesus we will see, is modeled after Moses. We're going to see that very, very, very specifically in God's plan. What's next? God's warning against idolatry was the visitation of consequences for generations. And you look at that and you say, that's not fair. Those further generations, they didn't do anything to deserve that. Why would God do that? Well, let's look at the next point. This warning exactly fits with the results of the first sin, all after suffer. Remember, when Adam sinned and he's cast out of the garden, the rest of his posterity was now going to be born in sin. So that one sin had that domino effect, and no human being born from Adam escaped the domino effect of that sin. So all God is doing is he's taking the same domino effect of sin and saying it applies to the law I'm giving you as well. This doesn't make it easy for you. This is something you need to rise up to, but it's not going to take away the consequences of sin. And what's the last point? Well, lastly, Rick, the law was there to give humanity a pathway to God's favor within the context of sin. And they needed the mediator. The pathway was there because This is the way God can deal with you. You're going to have to do do very specific things at very specific times to show that you want to be in line with Almighty God. And Jonathan, Almighty God is a whole lot bigger than we are, so being in line with him, yeah, you should do the specific things that he asks. Very important, Rick. (laughs) It is. Each segment, Jonathan, we're going to come to a point of a ransom realization. And when we say ransom, we're talking about the sacrifice of Jesus. What's our first ransom realization here? While the law was an important method of being acceptable to God, it did not solve the problem of sin and death for humanity. And Rick, no one could keep the law perfectly, all missed the mark, right? Uh, For if someone could keep the law, they would live forever. That was the promise. Yeah, you know, that's an important point. I I forget what chapter of Deuteronomy, but, but God says that, you know, keep the law and you will live. 
He doesn't say you'll live a, a generation or two. He says, and you will live. So the opportunity was there, but it was above them. Nobody could actually do it. So here we have Moses standing between God and humanity as this mediator. He's standing between God and Israel at this point, you know, as this mediator, and he is bringing them the law by which they have the opportunity to have favor of God in their lives. What's that got to do with Jesus? Oh, plenty. We just have to develop it. But you need to start with the beginning of the picture, and Moses is the beginning of this picture. So it looks like the law was a tool from God to help people get to God. How good a tool was it? Why would God put a law in place that didn't bring all people back to his favor? Was it you know what's great about subscribing to Christian Questions on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. You receive a push notification reminder every time a new episode is published. Plus, it's a good thing to binge listen to several episodes in a row, really easy playlist features, and you can auto-download new episodes to your phone every week. So subscribe today. Now let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. While the law was given to Moses was not in any way defective, it was given to a people who were defective. As we look back on Bible history from our present vantage point, it becomes obvious that God gave the law as a way for Israel to be attached to him and also put in place as a major stepping stone in his planned pathway to eternal life. So the people were defective, not the law. It, it, was, it was above them, and rightfully so, because you can't put something in place that an imperfect human being can do to make them 100% acceptable before God, because they're sinful. By definition, they're going to fall short. And you say, well, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. And also, Rick, we would look at the creator of all things to have wisdom enough not to be defective or faulty in his thought process. So the, and that, that's, that's an important point because now you got to say, okay, so how does it all work out? Where does it bring us to? If it didn't work to bring them all the way past sin, then was it defective? No. Then the obvious thing is it must have been just a step. So how do we figure that out? Well, here's the thing. The law had a larger purpose than just being given to Israel. Now, that was a pretty large purpose, understand. That was a pretty big thing, but there was even more to it than the role that it played with that one nation. And we know that because Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, tells us that. We're going to break that up into, into, into pieces. Let's go to uh, verse 19 to start. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels, by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Okay, so we've got this, it, it talks about a mediator. And, you know, Moses described himself as a mediator, and Galatians makes that point really perfectly clear. And Rick, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. When the Bible clarifies the seed, it's amazing. But more on that later. Okay, so the seed. Well, what does that mean? We'll, we'll get to that. So what the law did at this point is we know that it identified sin, and it was mediated, and it was temporary. This is important to understand the mind of God, because we see it says 
by agency of mediator until. So you got a sense that it's, it's going to be working and working and working, and then it stops when something else starts. Well, how does that all work? Let's figure that out. Verse 20 of Galatians chapter 3. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was unable to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. Okay, so if, if there was a law given that, was, that, that had the capacity to impart life, then righteousness would have been based on it. But it didn't have the capacity to impart life. So there has to be something else. You know, and that's the thing, like you said, you know, God doesn't think in a defective way. He's got a plan. Now, it's hard for us to figure it out, but it's in Scripture. So if we can figure out Scripture, we can then begin to get a view of what God's plan is. So, so, so Paul here is saying that the law upheld the promise of God, but not in a way that we might have anticipated. So it's like God's full of surprises. You know, you think, okay, he gave the law, that would be it. That would be the way to get to God. Yeah, it's good for a time. Well, why is it only good for a time? How come you can't just finish it already? Because the journey from sin to God is too far. There's too many different things that have to be learned along the way. So you've got to give it time to unfold. So patience, my son, we'll get there. Step by step. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Let's go to another perspective on what happens to these billions of individuals who do not come to Jesus in their lives. This is from John Piper. Uh, can we say Christ died for you to everyone? So that's the question. You know, can you say that? You, you come up to walk up to somebody on the street, and can you say Christ died for you? Here's his perspective. So there's a unique love, a great love for the elect that causes their resurrection. Where'd that come from? It came from the cross. He bought that for us. I'm alive because at the cross, God designed to purchase my awakening from the dead, which he didn't purchase for everybody. Which means, if we're going to use the language of he died for everybody, then he died for everybody in different ways. So he said that God's son, Jesus, on the cross did not purchase life for everybody. Okay. He said no. He said no. So Mr. Osteen says, well, I don't know. Mr. Piper says no. Now, John Piper is a Calvinist, okay, and they've got a very specific viewpoint on, on these things. But we thought it's important to bring in various viewpoints to, to compare them and take a look. So he's being emphatic in no, everybody doesn't get the benefit of that. Well, is that the scriptural truth? Let's go further and see if we can begin to understand this and find out. So in Galatians, it talks about the seed who would come to which the promise had been made, okay? And it's saying that this is something that's coming. Well, what promise who, to which the promise? It's like, okay, there's the promise, and you're supposed to know what promise that is. Well, Jonathan, what promise is it? It's found in Genesis 22, 17 through 18. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, 
because you have obeyed my voice. Okay. So, so Rick, this is the first clue, the first point about the seed. It's through Abraham's line. Okay. So God gives Abraham this promise. What's the context in which God gives Abraham this promise initially? What happens that God says this to him? Well, Abraham was faithful in offering his son Isaac on the altar of sacrifice. But he didn't but, offer him. No, because God stopped, with, through an angel, stopped him from doing it, but saw his faith, follow, would have followed through, and he blessed him because of his faith. You know, and, and the interesting thing is that Isaac was that child that was born out of Abraham's old age. He was a hundred. Yeah, yeah, and and Sarah was ninety or ninety one or something. I mean, so you're like, what? And and this was the promised seed. So this this child is born and grows, begins to grow up, and is a young man. And now it's like, okay, now sacrifice him to me. Now God doesn't do that. God doesn't have us sacrifice other people, but He does test us, and He tested Abraham. And God, you know, and Abraham knew the character of God. Abraham knew that God wasn't a monster, so he had faith in God that whatever happened, God would work it out. And sure enough, God did work it out. So that's the promise. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So initially, you look at that and say, oh, well, that's kind of pictured by Isaac because that was the promised seed. And that's the, the initial event of what happened. Hold that thought. Let's go back to it as this whole thing about the seed begins to develop. So this promise is unilateral. It comes from one goes to the other, and it's universal, which means all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay, so God says, this is what I proclaim, and nothing's going to change that. And it's universal for everyone. God says it's going to happen. So if God said it was going to happen, then wouldn't it just happen all by itself? Why does the law need a mediator? Let's go back to Galatians chapter 3, now verse 22. But the scripture has shut up everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He's talking about that promise again. So the promise was long-term through faith and was a privilege for believers. And the promise is about the seed, right, Jonathan? That's right. Jesus was from the line of David, um, but there's more. Okay, more coming. The seed doesn't end here. Okay, so this is just developing the idea, but it says the Scripture shut up everyone under sin. That's a hint that everybody is stuck under the rule of sin, and the law plays some kind of role here, which is beginning to be defined. It's going to get further defined as we go, but that's why you needed a mediator, because you needed somebody in between the two. So verse 23 of Galatians 3. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. We were kept in custody under the law. Now, you can look at custody two ways. When you take somebody in custody, you know, it's like, uh uh-oh, they did something wrong and now they're in custody, they're being held. Or you can say we are kept in custody under the law. In other words, when when you have custody of a child, you are the protector of the child. So, yes, absolutely. So, and that's the meaning here. It's not kept in custody as, oh, you did something terrible and you know, you're being punished. It is you are being protected under the law until something else happens, until faith, which was later to be revealed. So, 
So now we see that one of the bigger parts of the law is God puts it in place because you're waiting for Jesus. So you have to have somebody, something, holding the people to, to be acceptable to God. That's what the law was. So we're seeing how it has much. Uh, it does have a much bigger effect. Mediation was needed because sin ruled, and the nation could not approach God through the law without help. And it's interesting, after, after Moses died, Jonathan, what happened? You know, did they lose their mediator? Um, I guess they did. They did, but what happened is the priesthood was put in place. Oh, and that's the right. priesthood was able to help with the mediation work for Israel. So that's a detail we'll get to later. Verse 24 of Galatians 3. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Okay, the law has become our tu- tutor. The, the King James says it's become our schoolmaster. There's several definitions for that word for tutor. One of them is kind of like a school bus driver. Uh, in, in the Roman culture, the tutor was the person who was responsible for, for bringing the boys, the young men, to school so they could be educated, seeing them through their education, make sure it was taking root, bringing them home, overseeing them. And that's a great picture of what the law did. It oversaw the Jewish nation, and it brought them to the justification, the, the opportunity for the justification of faith in Christ. It says to lead us to Christ. And that's why John the Baptist came. And said, repent, because you have the law. You know what? You know why you're sinning, because the law told you you should repent, because here's Jesus. You know, it's a perfect picture. So, Rick, the promise to Abraham and the law set up the position that true Christians would occupy. Right. And see, that's the thing. Now we're getting to see the bigger reasons for the law. It was temporary. It's talked about as being a tutor to bring God's chosen ones to a higher place. And it plays this incredibly important role that you never would have guessed at the law's uh, beginning. You just, it, just, it seemed like it was self, uh, self-contained, and it was temporarily. So, for God to be able to deal with the whole world, they, the world, like Israel, are going to need a mediator to be put in place. Israel needed a mediator between them and God. His name was Moses. And the world is going to need a mediator between them and God. Let's take a look at that. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Okay, so God desires all men to be saved again. God wills, God has in mind that all men will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And in order for this to happen, you've got one God and you've got what? A mediator between God and men. And who's the mediator? Christ Jesus. So it's exactly, when we look at the way the scriptures define Moses, with between God and the people in relation to the law, you can see how the language fits perfectly with Jesus. Now look, we do believe that Jesus died for every human being. We absolutely believe that, and these are the scriptures that are going to help us put that in place clearly once and for all. Several observations on these uh, few scriptures from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. Uh, what are they? 
Well, first, Rick, God will have all men to be saved, saved to be better defined later. Okay, but he will have. It's his intention. It's not God's wish. It's not God's uh, uh, hope. It's not his doodling on his pad saying, oh, it'd be really nice for all men to be saved. That's God's plan. All, and it says all men will understand, come to a knowledge of the truth. What does it mean to come to a knowledge of the truth? Well, Rick, it means recognition that is by implication full discernment. This is different than simply, quote, hearing the name of Jesus. This is full discernment, full disclosure. You know the details. That's what the Timothy scripture is telling us. All men to be saved and come to full discernment of the truth. What's the next point? Jesus will mediate as Moses mediated so the people have a true opportunity. See, the people of Israel had an opportunity to be in harmony with God. The people of the world will have an opportunity to be in harmony with God. Same thing, different level. We're going to explore that different level in the next segment. And what's the last point here? Jesus mediates because he bought the right to mediate by way of his ransom sacrifice. He bought, you know, it's like having the rights to the book. Okay, when you buy the, you know, you've, you've got the rights to the book, what comes of it, you own. Jesus owns the right of mediation because of his ransom sacrifice. How do we know that? Because First Timothy 2, 3, and 3 to 6 just told us that, okay, who gave himself a ransom for all. There's one mediator because he gave himself a ransom for all. He legitimately bought the right. It's an amazing thing. So what's our, what's our ransom realization here? The plan of redemption for every human being has many distinct steps. The promise to Abraham and the law were two earlier and important steps for its accomplishment. Okay, so we're walking through why we believe Jesus died for everyone and taking these small steps and trying to take things that are somewhat complex and boil them down to, to some clarity in thinking. Israel needed a law. They needed guidance. But for that guidance to work, they needed somebody to stand between them and God, enter Moses. He mediated in between. The world of mankind in the future, and I know we're jumping to a conclusion here, but we're going to prove it as we go. The world of mankind in the future is going to need that mediator between them and God because they won't understand God's will. Jesus does. Jesus bought the right to stand between them. So the plan of redemption has distinct steps. The promise to Abraham, and thee and I see, shall all the families of the earth be blessed, and the law, the Ten Commandments plus, two early and important steps of, uh, for this plan's accomplishment. So, the law was a tool to help humanity up the path toward God, one of many tools. Moses and Jesus both mediate. What's the difference between their mediation work and subjects? We're excited to be hearing from our growing listening audience at ChristianQuestions.com through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also chat with us now during the live broadcast. You know what would be really awesome? If you can leave us a review when you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and others. It helps us reach even more people. Thank you for subscribing and reviewing. Now, let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. Here is where we put the plan of God really in place and it begins to shine. Because God has such perfect foresight, 
He put in the scriptures many prophetic statements that show us how to interpret things and how to put the pieces together. After all, a plan of redemption for an entire race has lots of moving parts. And Jonathan, it requires lots of patience to get to those moving parts. It does, Rick. And and back in the first segment, there was a significant sinful world rule mentioned. So that's our context. Now, remember in Deuteronomy 5.9, remember the phrase visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generations? Okay. So again, that was passing on the consequences of sin to generation after generation. And, 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 and the cry is, that's not fair. Folks, sin is not fair. Sin doesn't give you a chance. Once you're sinful, you're doomed. Okay? And it sounds depressing. None of that is fair. All God was doing was following the pattern of what Adam established by choosing to disobey. God put in place the thought that you've got to do it the right way, and Adam did not, and now the consequences come to you and I. Is that fair? Nope. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Inevitably, it is fair because justice must be served. And that's the beauty of God's plan. It just takes a little time to get there. See, the original sin of Adam, that's where this rule had been in place right from the start. Moses mediated under the context of this rule. Romans 5.12, a good verse on that. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Pretty simple. That's the rule. That's the way sin works. There's nothing you can do about it. Ah, but there's something God can do about it, and there's something God did do about it, And there's something God had planned to do about it all along. That's why we spent all this time looking at Moses as a mediator. Because God is telling us, here's the picture, here's the picture, here's the picture, here's the picture. That's why the Abrahamic promise is so important. Because it's about Isaac, the promised seed. Here's the picture, here's the picture, here's the picture. Get the picture? I got the picture. (laughs) See, it's a beautiful thing when you look at the Old Testament and you see the power of these things come shining through. Now we've got to get those pieces and put them together with the New Testament. That's what we're going to start doing now. First, let's go back to John Piper, because remember he said, no, the plan of God does not offer that that redemption for every, every human being. So let's let him finish his thought. I don't think that's the New Testament gospel. To look at a person, like a pick I want to use on the front row here, I don't need from Adam and walk up to you and say, Christ died for you. I don't think that's the New Testament gospel. I think the New Testament gospel is... Christ died for sinners. Christ died and purchased a bride for himself. And in it, he totally secured their conversion. He totally secured their awakening from the dead. He totally secured their faith. He totally secured their perseverance. And he totally secured their glorification. It is done in Christ Jesus. Would you like that? You can have it. It's yours for the free embrace. It's a gift. That package, that package of totally purchased redemption may be had by anybody who will have it as their treasure, have it as their life. That's the gospel. You know, I like what he said at the end of his comments, but thoroughly disagree with the beginning of the comment. Because he said, you know, it's not for everybody. And then he describes what we look at as the calling. And he says, for those who want it, they can have it. And I say, yes, and I would applaud that part. And I would say, the difference is, I would say, 
That is the beginning of the gospel. Don't forget the ending of the gospel. And we'll see that. We'll see that. So, again, respectfully disagree with, uh, you know, and look, uh, John, John Piper is a very well-respected Calvinist preacher, and I have great respect for him and his studied approach. But this on something like this, you know, look at it and say, no, 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 no. I think the scriptures teach something entirely different. Okay, let's get back to uh, looking at the scriptures now. The time in which Jesus mediates will have an entirely different basis for operation. Now remember, the basis for operation of Moses' mediation was the passing of sin on to generations and generations. There is a difference in the time Jesus mediates. Acts chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, from ancient time. So so in these couple of verses Jonathan there is there are, are magnificent details. So so what 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 do you see? Well, the first one is Jesus was first sent from heaven. And then secondly, Jesus must return to heaven. And then thirdly, he must mediate between God and men. And fourthly, prophecies will be are being fulfilled when this is being done. Okay, so there's a lot of moving parts in these couple of verses. And it also says he, the heavens must retain until the period of restoration of all things. Now, when you look at restoration of all things, the implication there, now this is an implication at this point, is that the, the, the passing on of sin from generation to generation would be over because it wasn't that way at the beginning. Before there was sin, there was no sin to pass on. And what I picture, Rick, is the Garden of Eden, perfection, harmony with God is, right. is restored. So this is the times of restoration of all things. That's what is described as the, the, the time in which Jesus operates. Jesus' mediation is future. Its time is of a universal restoration, and that should be no surprise. Universal restoration. Now, I know, folks, if, if, you, if you don't see things the way we see them, I know what you're starting to think, like, okay, so now you're saying, doesn't matter what you do, everybody gets saved, right? Um, yeah, to a degree. Stay with us on that. You can be upset about that for now. But we're going to get into that a little bit further to show you what we believe God has in store for that. But let's first go to chapter Second Peter uh, chapter 2, verse Nine And again, there's some really powerful things in this short little verse. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Okay, there's two parts to this verse, Jonathan. We're going to slightly ignore the first part. It says the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Now he's obviously, this is the Apostle Peter, he's obviously talking about those who are following Christ, right? Absolutely. Okay, and he's saying, God knows how to... So so we're going to get to that later. That's coming up very, very soon. But let's focus on uh, outside of the godly, because, you know, John Piper in his comment was talking about the godly and all the good gifts that come to the godly. Here's what happens to the others. To reserve the unjust, that would be everybody who's not following Christ, reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished. Okay. What does that actually mean? Well, Rick, in the Greek, the word judgment means a separating, sundering, separation, 
a trial or a contest, a selection and judgment. So the thing we need to take away from that particular word, and that, that word is worthy of study, okay, to see how it's used, because when you, you study it through, what you see is it gives you a sense of a process, not a final declaration. See, you can say judgment, and it can mean two different things. Judgment can mean either a stamp of guilty or innocent, or judgment can mean, okay, you're under scrutiny. And that is what the way we see that word, because that's what the definition shows us. And I, I like to look at it as a time of trial. Right, right, exactly, a time of trial. Now, but it says a time of trial, trial to be punished. So you say, well, wait, 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 wait. That sounds like a final stamp of disapproval. I love this word punished, Jonathan. It, it, the, the, the definition just sings out of something so profound. It's, it's, just, just read it. To lop or prune as trees and wings, to curb, check, or restrain. Those are the words. Check it. And this is from the Greek English lexicon. To lop or prune as trees or wings. So you think about pruning. You think about a tree. And a tree, for it to be able to grow appropriately, to be able to produce good fruit, what has to happen? Well, you've got to prune the tree so that the nourishment goes to where those buds are to produce that, that beautiful fruit. So the reason for the trial... The reason for the separating, for the time of testing, is so that those being tested can be pruned, which means they can be given opportunity to grow. And now tree or wings, you know, when you, when you, when you, when you, uh, when you lop off or, or, or trim wings, you know, you make it so somebody can't fly. They can't fly away. I mean, that's, that's really what it's saying. It's giving, it's pulling them in, curbing the sinfulness and giving them direction. So I think there's so much more to it than just, oh, tr judgment to be punished. Look at what the words actually mean. And, and folks, look, I don't know Greek from anything, all right? We rely on the definitions of those written by those who understand ancient Greek. This is not something that we are capable of. I can't even read letters in Greek for crying out loud. <laughs> all I know is when you look at what the definitions are of those ancient words, it opens up the scriptures in a way that's just magnificent. So Jesus' mediation will be acted upon by walking the world through accountability. That's a big word, accountability. So they will be able to stand before God forever on their own chosen merits of learned and accepted righteousness. And Rick, will people be able to get away with things during this time? No. Revelation 2.27 says, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. There will be strict, strict um, things that they can and can't do. So there are consequences for actions. Absolutely. So in the mediation of Jesus, the times of restoration to restore, when you restore something, a lot of times you have to pull it apart. You've got to break it down. Then you can, can rebuild it. You know, you've, it's got to be repaired. That's what this is about. It's the restoration of all things. And it's teaching people, if you're restoring people back to their original form, the original form was Adam in the garden. Perfect. Okay? Right. Their own chosen merits to learn and accept righteousness on their own, just like Adam, but now with experience behind them. So, God clearly shows us through prophecy 
that the rules will go from inheriting generational sins, um, you know, going, you know, from the third and fourth generation. Right, yeah. Right. To being fully accountable for past and present personal sins. The Bible tells us that that's what's going to happen. Remember we said, well, you know, the time of restoration implies that the passing on of sin goes away, and that's just an implication, and you don't have anything to support it. Personal accountability, Rick. Right. That's heavy duty. And that is shown to us clearly in the prophecy of Jeremiah 31, 29 to 34. Now, this prophecy is focused on Israel's restoration, but remember, and our, our belief is that God's kingdom comes through Israel to the world. So what Israel has to go through, the world will have to go through as well. Here is what Jeremiah says about those days, that day in the future. Here's what's going to happen. Here's how accountability is described. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But Everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. So what that's saying is that the, the rules in the time of Moses, passing sin on from generations to follow, no more. That's gone. Right. It's very simple. It's no longer going to be the fathers have eaten the sour grapes and the children suffer. That's what it was in Moses' time. This is clearly saying that in those days there's going to be a paradigm shift. There's going to be a shift of organization and operation. And now everyone will die for his own iniquity, that accountability you talked about. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. So this is the personal accountability that Jesus will mediate between God and man. Remember that scripture from before. Mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who died as a ransom for all. Verse 31 and 32. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. So not like what covenant which he made with their fathers? The law covenant, Rick. So what it's saying is there's going to be this new covenant. and Because it's gonna... the law covenant was temporary. Exactly. And we knew it was temporary because the scriptures told us it was temporary. So it's not like, oh, that's a fail. No, that exactly fulfilled what it needed to. And in those days, God is simply saying, there's going to be a new one. There's going to be something different for the people. Well, what is so? So uh, the, the law is temporary. But now when we fast forward, the ransom is paid and a new covenant is going to be put in its place. Now, remember, Just as the Old Covenant needed mediation, so the New Covenant needs mediation as well. And again, it all stems from and through Israel. How do we know? Because Jeremiah tells us unequivocally, verses 33 to 34 of Jeremiah chapter 31. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord? For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So, Rick, uh, this describes a final judgment after the mediator work is complete, where people will die for their own iniquities. 
and you see what happens after that process, after that time of judgment to be pruned, to be lopped, to be curbed or checked or restrained. It says after those days, the law is going to be in their hearts. And they're not going to have to worry about saying, do you know the Lord? Because everybody's going to know. And from the least of them to the greatest of them, everybody will understand. That's where this brings us. But they also, Rick, have free choice with all that knowledge and information. Right, right. So you're right. Nobody is coerced to have this happen. And the reason we know that is it says it will be written in their hearts. God gave us the ability to choose. He gives us control of our own heart. He lets us decide to have his law written in our heart. And once we decide to have it written in our heart after that period of time for humankind, it will be written there forever. So through Jesus, this new covenant will produce heart-driven obedience to the sovereignty of God. And that's a powerful, powerful thought to Israel first, but to everyone else uh, after. What's our ransom realization here for this segment? Well, Rick, the plan of redemption for every human being works through Israel and actually gives each and every person a full opportunity to choose righteousness. And it's all about making a choice. So, you know, we we started with the way the rules were. God is going to clearly change them. And why does he change them? Justice requires he change them because Jesus got into play and the ransom was paid. And now every man has the opportunity to live uh, for himself. So now this makes sense. It is all about giving humanity an absolutely fair shot at life, real life. Seems like we left out the role of those who go to heaven. How are they different? What do they do? We're constantly looking to our listeners for your feedback on our weekly episode discussions. Let us know if you'd like to hear more topics like this one or new topical suggestions. Keep your comments coming at ChristianQuestions.com and our Facebook page. We're also talking about topics in Reddit, and you should check us out helping answer questions on Quora. That's Q-U-O-R-A.com. We're engaging in combo everywhere. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. Here again is where the foresight and planning of God's redemption for all shines through. There is an entirely different and well-defined role for those who truly follow Christ. It's because this role is so radically different that many Christians end up confusing the whole redemption process. And Jonathan, this is an important point because this is something that a lot of Christianity doesn't talk about. We, We seem to focus on being called by Christ, and becoming footstep followers of Jesus, and a heavenly reward. And we should talk about that. But there's more. There's but what about everyone else? And, and, you know, the everyone else is not something you just arbitrarily say, oh, we feel bad for them, so let's make a way. It is something much bigger than that. It is the power of a plan that was predetermined. That's why we started with Moses. That's why we started with the Abrahamic promise, to show how this plan was in place and just needed to be brought up to speed over time. Because undoing the effects of sin is an eternal work that has to last for eternity. You can't rush it. Okay, You simply can't rush it. Um, 
Okay, let's go to another soundbite. This is from this is from Pastor Billy Graham. Okay, passed away I don't know a year or two ago, and this is this is old. This is like twenty years old. He's being interviewed, but he says something that is startling. Was startling to me when I heard it about uh, Jesus is not the only way. And you think, wait, wait, Billy Graham would say that? Well, well, listen, listen to the question, and we're going to break his answer up into two pieces. Tell me, what do you think is the future of Christianity? Well, Christianity and being a true believer, you know, I think there's the, the, the body of Christ, which comes from all the Christian groups around the world, or outside the Christian groups. I think everybody that, that loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're members of the body of Christ. And I don't think that we're going to see a great sweeping uh, revival that will turn the whole world to Christ at any time. I think James answered that, the Apostle James, in the first council in Jerusalem, when he said that God's purpose for this age is to call out a people for his name. Mm -hmm. And that's what God is doing today. He's calling people for, out of the, the world for his name. You know, so we're going to get some more detail on his comments in, 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 in the next segment. But he said something, people from all walks of life are members of the body of Christ, whether they know it or not. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, and I got to take some serious, serious, serious challenge to that statement. The body of Christ is something you run for. It's something you, you dedicate your life for. It's something you give up your own will for. So... You know, I got to think about that. And, and Rick, um, something that I was thinking about with this subject, the great thing about the Bible, it clarifies itself. There's a lot of confusion out there, and truly, that's the way Satan wants it. Yeah, you're right. And, and confusion is Satan's wheelhouse. He it loves is. there to be confusion. Um, um, Trish, did you have a comment outside of the other comment? I did. Oh, okay. She's waving. I'm saying, wait, wait, not yet, not yet. Go. I'm sorry. Hi. Hi, Trish. It's okay. You can just ignore me. That's okay. No, no. no. Oh, geez, I'm in trouble now, Jonathan. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, before you get too far in this next section, I just wanted to make a comment about your last um, comments about, you know, this amazing plan that's for all people, that people are going to have this opportunity and I imagine that a lot of people would say, well, this is awesome because I can do whatever I want and yeah. I am going to be there and I can just worry about it in the future. This is great. But it reminds me of um, I don't know, doing laundry. I know this might sound like a strange uh, picture, but yeah, this is a stretch. OK, <laughs> not really. You know, if you get yourself get stains on your clothes. Yeah. And you don't take care of them. What happens? You wash them and it doesn't come out. Now, Christ is our stain stick sort of thing. You know, we put on the Christ for stain stick to wash those things out. But, you know, there are certain stains that if you don't take care of them, they're not coming out. And that's what happens. You know, if you just say, oh, OK, I can just do what I want and I'll just wait for the future. You very well might have so much damage in your heart and character that it's not coming out. So you got to really be careful. That's not a free-for-all. Okay.
You need spiritual stain stick. I like that. That's good. <laughs> See, it wasn't a stretch at all. <laughs> all right. All right. So, so let, let, let's focus now, with that in mind, let's focus on the biblical fact that there are, and this is a biblical fact, there are two different classes of people with positive effects from the ransom of Jesus Christ. Two different classes of people. This is a biblical fact. How do we know? Because obviously the Bible told us. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Two different classes, right? Absolutely. Savior all men and followers of Christ. All men. Remember the mediator? Jesus died for all men, you know, a testi- uh, a ransom to be testified in due time. One mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Okay? All men under a mediator, as we previously discussed, just like Moses was a mediator. Those that believe are not under the mediator. They are different, especially of those that believe. They're under what's called an advocate. How do we know that? Simple. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. So this is we. This advocate thing is never shown in relation to the world. It's shown in relation to those who are following after Christ. Get out that stain stick, Rick. There you go. That's right. That's right. And, and read the, the second verse as well. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Okay, so he is the solution for our sins, but not ours but also the sins of the whole world. So what John Piper was saying about, well, no, it really doesn't apply to the whole world, I don't know what he does with that verse. But that's what it says. So this advocate relationship is describing those whom Jesus stands with, because that's what an advocate does. An advocate's not in between. An advocate sits next to you and advocates for you, stands with and represents versus those whom Jesus mediates for. Two different classes of people with positive effects from the ransom. One has a positive effect sooner, the other has the positive effects later, but they both have positive effects. Jonathan, I want to pause here for a second because, Trish, I think you had some comments from one of our CQ contributors. Uh, Yes, I do. Um, This comment says, The ransom is the one doctrine that explains everything in the Bible. It answers questions like, Why was Eve taken from Adam's rib? Or, why was Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's? Okay, let, let's pause there for a second. Because Eve was taken from Adam's rib because that means she was taken out from him, which means that Jesus died for her as well when he died for Adam. All of his posterity, including Eve, which came from him, recovered. That's why. Beautiful. Why, why, why was Abe sacri- Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's? Jonathan, why? What was the difference between Abel's sacrifice and Cain's? It was blood. It was a blood sacrifice. It was a sacrifice, and that was the symbol. Not vegetation. Right, right. So, okay, Trish, go ahead. Finish the finish the the thoughts. It says um, the Old Testament points to the cross. The New Testament points back to the cross. The ransom explains time prophecies, the evil in the world, the future hope for mankind, 
and the two parts of salvation. So thanks, Trish. A great, great comment from one of our contributors. So what, what that does is that puts it all in perspective. It's like, this is the one thing. If you get this, everything else falls right into place. And that's why this is so doggone exciting, because amazing. you look at it and you say, man, there's so much to it. Remember Galatians 3, where it talked about the role of the law and its mediator in faith? Well, it didn't end there. There was much more to it. And I know, Jonathan, you've been dying to get to this part. I love this one, Rick. Go ahead. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And... If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Okay. And Rick, here's another part of that seed again. If we are Christ, if we are followers, if we're dedicated to following Jesus' footsteps, we're part of that seed. That is amazing. And, and what does that seed do? Blesses all the families of the earth. And so... To be a part of that, Jesus is that seed. But it says, you are are heirs, inheritors of the promise. In your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You inherit that. So what happens is, Jesus advocates for us so that the blessing of all the families of the earth, he can mediate later and we can work with him. And Rick, this opportunity for human to spiritual is for a specific time and it's only for a specific few. Exactly. And, and that's where I think Christianity f- drops the ball. Frankly, they just drop the ball on understanding that there's this calling out now for the purpose of blessing everyone else later. Now, how do we make this leap? We've got this one scripture that says, you're Abraham's descendants, you're heirs according to the promise. Okay, you're part of the seed. We get that. But boy, Jonathan, the next part is so amazingly clear it's just going to blow your mind, folks, when you listen to this. Let's go back to Moses. This is why we started with Moses. The initial blessing of Israel under Moses was deliverance, remember? He yes. was the deliverer. He came, and they were delivered from slavery. Well, how were they delivered? Let's go to Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. Remember, you had the nine plagues, and then the tenth plague, and then the deliverance. How did that happen? The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, but here's the thing. The blood will be a sign on your houses, but who would be liable to dying if they didn't have the blood on the house? Only the firstborn, Rick. That's it. Okay, the firstborn would have died if there wasn't blood on the house. Right. Their lives were at stake, so... The the firstborn were delivered by the blood of the lamb. From there, the entire nation was delivered by that blood after the firstborn. Second, yes. Right. So you've got the firstborn being the first to be delivered, right? Absolutely. Now, folks, now wait. Here it is. Drum roll, please. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. To the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven... And to God, the judge of all, 
and to the spirits of just men made perfect. The church of the firstborn. That's not by accident. So what it's saying is those called to follow Christ are represented by the firstborn from the time of Moses. Delivered first. And don't forget, the people were delivered afterwards. That's the beauty of this. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. There you have it. Again, another reiteration that the firstborn of Israel absolutely pictured the firstborn being those who follow Jesus, because 1 Corinthians was written to Christians, to dedicated Christians. Hebrews was written to dedicated Christians. wasn't written to, written to anybody else. It was written to those dedicated Christians. The firstborn and then the whole nation. Christians delivered first, then the rest of the world. That's what this picture is showing us. Now, let's expand it even further. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 12. And again, we're looking at the role that the called-out ones play. Because, you know, up to this point, we've been sort of ignoring them. But they play an enormous role. It's just totally different than the rest of the world. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, it's interesting that, remember the firstborn, you know, after they were delivered, and then the priesthood sprung up, remember the tribe of Levi became the priesthood, or the source of the priesthood? Mm -hmm. And all the firstborn had to be, be bought to be able to transfer their privilege to the to the, uh, the the priesthood. So this covers it all. What it's saying is all of those things are representing the body of Christ. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession, that you can proclaim the excellencies of, of, the, of he who called you out of darkness. Now here's what happens. Now pay attention to what happens to the rest of the world in verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. When? In the day of visitation. Not now. Not now. Later. After they're resurrected and they remember their experiences. So you see the role that the called-out ones play is to give an example now and to help later so that the, the that those who might slander you now they're not they're not acting as good people can glorify God later because they recognize the goodness and the spirituality of your behavior Jonathan this gives us a sense of the power of Jesus ransom and the privilege of those called out to follow him what's our ransom realization here the plan of redemption for every human being works through true Christians. They are called chosen and faithful for the purpose of mediating between God and man as the Christ. And see, that's an important distinction. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about being the body of Christ. We're not Jesus. We don't have the same redemptive power of Jesus, but we work with his redemptive power and we do what he tells us to do. 
So we are Jesus' body in the sense that he's all of the merit. We're just the workers. And I think there's a powerful, powerful connection uh, there. And that's for the benefit of who? The rest. Everyone. Right. (laughs) Right. So not only does God give humanity a fair shot, he gives them necessary help to actually succeed. We have Jesus, his followers, Israel, and the world. We also have the law covenant and the new covenant. How do we put them all together? Every episode, we cover a lot of ground. Part of gathering all the information and drawing conclusions is having a thorough conversation. Thanks to all our listeners for all your feedback every week. Rick and Jonathan want to hear more comments and questions. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com, through all our social media channels, and download our app by searching Christian Questions in your app store. Now, since we have puzzle pieces everywhere, let's put those pieces together. All of these pieces do seamlessly fit together according to Scripture. It's just a matter of applying them where they belong, which can be easier said than done. So, let's do this. Let's look at a summary list of Scriptures that tell this story of salvation in short form. Let's look at this list of Scriptures that says, okay, one Scripture for each step. So, Jonathan, in a way, we're going to oversimplify this to walk through the whole process of what we were, we've been spending the entire podcast working on, okay? Before we do that, though, let's go back to uh, Billy Graham's comment, because, you know, he was saying that the body of Christ is made up of those who don't even know it, okay? Again, it's not something we agree with, but, but let's give him, you know, the opportunity for his uh, explanation. So let's listen. Whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non believing world uh, they are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God they may not even know the name of Jesus but uh, they know in their heart that they need something that they don't have and they turn to the only light that they have and I think that they are saved and that they're going to be with us in heaven this is fantastic I'm so thrilled to hear you say that there's a wideness in God's mercy. There is. There's a wideness in God's mercy. You know, the interesting thing about that, Jonathan, is, you know, the dilemma is pretty dramatic because you have the unsaved billions throughout history. And those unsaved billions are, are you, you wonder... You know, if you believe in hell, they're all going there, and you think, well, wait, there's a lot of good people that go there, and you think, well, that's not God's way. We're not going to do the hellfire thing. Go to the three-part series we just did several weeks ago or a couple months ago and, and, and deal with that there. But, you know, Billy Graham had a dilemma, I think. He saw the goodness. He knew, he knew God's heart was big. He knew God was just and merciful. I just don't think that he had the scriptures in order to say they are in line for saving, but simply not heavenly. Because there are, Jonathan, there are a load of scriptures that talk about earthly salvation. Prophecies in the Old Testament. I mean, we're talking dozens that are clear and specific. So anyway, you know, it's a perspective. What we, folks, the good news is that the plan of God does include them, but not without accountability. So let's go through this, Jonathan, step by step. First, Here's the first idea. Here's the first thought. Here's the first fact. We are all doomed to death. 
Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Simple. The wages of sin is death. The opposite of life. That's right. You know, and it doesn't say death and torment. It says death. It says about Adam, not his body. It says you will return to the dust from whence you came. From dust thou art and to dust thou shalt return. The wages of sin is the cessation of life. You sinned and the privilege of living is now revoked. That's the wages of sin. The gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus our Lord. Amazing grace. And so so we've got to see how that gift of God works. God provided hope in the face of death, this death sentence, through the Abrahamic promise, remember, in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed, and through the law, the Ten Commandments plus Hebrews 10, 3 and 4 reminds us that the law was in place and it was effective, but it was limited. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I love the way, that, you know, the Apostle Paul is so smart. <laughs> just got to give him credit, man. He's just so smart. He says in those sacrifices, all those sacrifices that Israel had to do with the Day of Atonement and all of those other sacrifices, what were they there for? To remind them about the sin. Right, to continually let them know that you need to be atoned for. You need to be atoned for. You need to be atoned for. But, and he says it was impossible for all of those sacrifices. You could sacrifice 10,000 rams. It's not going to take away sin. It reminds you of it. It atones temporarily, but it doesn't take it away. So the law was there as a major step toward the recognition that without God's direction in the law and without the sacrifice needed, you're stuck. You are just stuck in sin. Next step, Jesus came, fulfilled that law, and gave himself as a fair price for Adam. Life for life. Romans 5.18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. And Rick, uh, this was the right amount. A perfect man for a perfect man. He had to be entirely human because that's what justice requires. So, the sacrifice of Jesus was the one thing that could take away sin. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. It just reminded them. Those things were a picture. See, God uses pictures. Moses, what an incredible picture he was of Jesus and all of those examples we were giving earlier in the podcast. And so you see these pictures, and now you get to the point, and Romans is very specific through tra- one transgression, the resulted condemnation to all. Okay, through Adam, one transgression, everybody's condemned to death. So through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all. Translation, the same number of men, women, and children that died in sin and death are redeemed by Jesus. 
It's the exact same number. You can't argue with that because that's what Romans says. Now, there's more to the story than that because it's not just that simple. There's more more pieces. As a result, Jesus presides over the raising of all mankind from death in Adam. He presides over it because he bought the rights to the book. Okay, he, he paid the price, and now he owns the rights. John 5, 28 and 29. And this is the scripture you said at the very beginning that you wanted to comment on. I said, no, no, That's no. That's right. You can comment on it now all you want after you all read it. right. Okay. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Well, Rick, my comment is those that are for, to the resurrection of life, I would venture to say are the called out ones, the spirit begotten ones that will be with our Lord in heaven, the first step, the firstborn. Okay, okay, but, just pause there for a second, because let, let's, okay. let's develop that. So you're saying the resurrection of life is just like the firstborn were given life before Israel was given its total freedom. Absolutely. Okay, Israel's freedom followed as a result of the firstborn being given life. So you're saying the firstborn fit the called out ones of true church. Go ahead, the next part. Absolutely. And then the last part, um, those who committed the evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment, that is a good translation for that Greek word, but the King James mistranslates it, um, damnation. And that is not what that Greek word means. So that really confuses a lot of Christians when they read that. So judgment, we talked about that, a time of trial, a time of testing, that gives that second part of that ransom to the rest of the world time to develop and grow. Right, and it's the same word that we were discussing earlier. It's exactly the same word. So, you know, what, what we're seeing is two parts. There's two parts. Everybody's included, but it takes a couple of parts to do it. And there's a reason for that, because the first part is through which the others get their blessing because the firstborn were, 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 were saved in Egypt first, and then the rest of them were delivered from sin, from, from, the, from, the, from the, the grip of, of, of Satan, you know, pictured by Pharaoh and that. So, all right, so resurrection of judgment, resurrection of trial, resurrection of time of, of working on things, of development. The true followers of Jesus are raised to life. That's the next step that we need to be really, really clear on. They're raised to life. Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. See, now here's the beauty of this part. There are few that find it. And you look at that and you say, oh, that's too bad. The whole world misses out. No, they don't. They're simply not called to that level. Big difference. The world still has opportunity, but like Trish said, it doesn't mean that you can just go scuffle and get, get as dirty as you want because there's going to be accountability. And that's the next step. And folks, in this whole conversation about did Jesus die, really die for everyone, if you don't walk away with the idea of full, complete, utter accountability for everything, you've missed the point. Nobody gets away with anything. Great example of that, Matthew ten fifteen. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, think about this. We, 
so many Christians look at Sodom and Gomorrah as that pic- as a picture of hellfire, okay? You know, oh, the fire, and it burned them up. And, and First of all, it destroyed them. Let's understand that, okay? They, they died. No, yeah, nobody lived through it. They died. Secondly, though, it says, in the day of judgment, it will be easier for Sodom and Gomorrah. What does that mean? It means they come back. And then it would be for Capernaum. Why then Capernaum? Because Jesus taught there and they rejected him. And he did miracles there and they didn't accept him at all. And that's what Trish was saying before with the stain stick. If you just Right. If so Jesus is warning very clearly, if you've heard good things and you don't do something about it, you're making your life so much more difficult later. Trust me, your life is going to be difficult. Don't take it for granted. Turn to righteousness right now. Right now right now that's that's the message here because you're going to need it more tolerable for sodom and gomorrah implies that there's a better chance you know and and that there's hope and that's a beautiful thing next point israel and jerusalem will be the source of earthly blessing and again jonathan we're going to quote one verse isaiah 2 3 but there are loads of old testament prophecies that show us the role of israel natural israel in this whole plan, and it's magnificent. Isaiah 2, 3. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And Rick, this is the result of the seed that was promised. Here he goes with the seed again. Way back, it began with the Abrahamic promise, but this is the result of Jesus, the true seed, and the footstep followers aiding him and helping him to help the world and and rehabilitate them. You know, and and in one of the versions of the promise, or or maybe a few of them, the the promise, because it's, it's, it's reiterated several times in the Old Testament, the promise says, I multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sands of the seashore. Now, why does he do that? Is he being poetic? Spiritual resurrection and earthly resurrection. It's a perfect picture. It is. So you have Israel, physical Israel, the sands of the seashore. What do they do? They bless the families of the earth. You have spiritual Israel, those called to follow Jesus. What do they do? They bless the families of the earth. All are part of the same thing. It is magnificent. Jonathan, we started out with a scripture uh, as our theme text, Isaiah 42, verse 1. So let's go to that theme text now as we get to wrap up. Let's read verse 1, then we'll read verse 3, and then we're going to pause for a minute, then we'll go on to verse 4 of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. This is a powerful promise, and it's a universal, it's a worldwide promise. My servant, this is talking about Jesus, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I mean, you, we already have God in, 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 at the Mount of Transfiguration announcing, you know, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's where it comes from, okay? I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to who? To the world. To the nations. A bruised reed he won't break. A dimly burning wick he won't extinguish. He will bring forth justice. It's a beautiful picture of accountability and power 
and mercy and love and wisdom and the role that Christ plays. Now, verse 4. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So nothing will get in the way of Jesus fulfilling the ransom work. He, he died and was raised. He paid the price. And now this part, he implements the price. And it says, and even the coastlands it wait expectantly for his law. He will establish justice in the entire earth. Folks, understand, this is, this is monumental. This is why we say Jesus really did die for everyone. What's our final ransom realization? The plan of redemption for every human being is simple. Restore the harmony between God and mankind that was lost. It is just. All those lost because of Adam's sin have full opportunity to live. It is eternal. As Adam was designed to live, so will all humanity. Thank you, Jesus. You know, and that, uh, a brother who goes to our, our Bible studies, his name is Brother Art. He's always saying that. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And, and when I was writing those last few lines, that's the thing that came into my head. Thank you, Jesus, because there is nothing better than what Jesus did. This plan of God is very straightforward. It is simple. It is, it restores harmony. It is just because it pays for Adam and we all die in Adam. And it is eternal because the price covers everyone. And once everyone goes through their personal accountability and makes that personal choice, they have an opportunity to live in a paradise of earth. While those who are faithful to Christ now are in heaven. What a magnificent plan. Folks, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today. This is one of our favorite subjects of all time, understanding how the power of God through Jesus affects every man, woman, and child who ever lived. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, did Jesus really die for everyone? Oh, yes, he did. Don't ever forget it. Put that accountability in place right now. Until next week, think about it. Folks, listen, we want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, we'll be talking about what is the true meaning of loyalty. Talk to you next week. <laughs>